All right. Well, being that it's December and being that we're going to be feasting on a Christmas dinner, I thought it would be appropriate this morning for me to preach to you a, a most familiar message this day as we prepare to celebrate Christ's incarnation. And I pray that this message will help basically help us reflect on what we really are celebrating every December and hopefully every day as believers. So if you would open God's word with me at this time to Luke, Luke chapter two. And here we're going to hear the good news story about the incarnation of God's mercy. What we're hearing is basically the greatest story ever told because it's told by God, about God, and for God's glory. It's a story about how God the Son took on flesh to come and rescue sinners like us personally. And I have to admit as you're, as you're turning there that Christmas narratives are really difficult to preach because we as preachers know you all know them. And you know them well. And you've heard them often and we preach them every year and, and you hear those same messages and you think, OK, Randy, go to something new. Well, listen, there's nothing newer and greater than this for the Christian. This should refresh our souls and revive our hearts every time we come to it. I don't want familiarity here to breed contempt in us as believers. I actually pray that it would never do that as we come to read the good news story of Christ's incarnation. I actually hope that uh, the story here does something truly miraculous in all of us today, which is the work of God's spirit, that he would not only revive our hearts, but he would utterly amaze us today once again by the grace and mercy we receive through Christ and this story that we see in the text. Let me give you an outline to help you follow along this morning in this story, this good news story about Christmas. I believe God reveals to us four Christ exalting truths that we need to hear as Christians today, this season. First of all, this story reveals God's sovereignty over human history in verses 1 to 5. The story goes on to reveal God's sympathy for sinners like us personally in verses 6 and 7. And this story reveals God's mercy to the unworthy in verses 8 through 11. And then lastly... This story reveals God's glory to us supernaturally, powerfully, in verses 12 to 20. Pray that I can get through it all, because this is the best part. We want to get to that, which is most God-exalting. Listen as I read the first five verses in Luke chapter 2. And, and I want you to, as I read this, I want you to read it afresh. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to truly grasp this as if it's the first time you've ever read it and just be amazed. You're going to hear the word amazed, astounded and awe a lot this morning. Okay, you're going to think, Randy, you have no other vocabulary. I have no other words to say but those things about the incarnation. So get used to it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, house of bread, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
Now, this is important for us to grasp, I think, this morning in, in its reading as a whole, that what's going on here looks on the surface like man is dictating what's going on with Joseph and Mary, but that's not the truth. That's not the reality. Here in this passage, 1 to 5, we learn that God is sovereignly directing all the people and all the events in this story, even the ones in the past that led to this registration. He's doing this in order to reveal his prophetic plan of mercy that will be revealed in Christ's incarnation. Now, look, in verses 1 to 5, you have to understand this, that, that it's, it's God who is behind the decree of Caesar Augustus. It's, it's not Caesar acting on his own, but God is at work bringing about this plan, this redemptive plan through the fallen men like Caesar. He's an instrument in that sense in God's sovereign hand. And what he's doing is he is actually giving us a glimpse of how God works from the beginning to the end in history to exalt his name. It's in the fullness of time that this decree went out, the time that God had appointed from before the foundation of the world. And this plan is what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill what God had promised in history prophetically. Look what Micah says. Micah chapter 5. I'll read it to you. Micah 5 verses 2 to 5. Talk about this prophetic plan that God had decreed before Caesar was born. And that Caesar was actually employed to act on. It says this. In verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Euphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, speaking of that child, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Caesar had no idea he was a part of that. God was working out his redemptive plan in the fullness of time, even through wicked men. And this is good for us to know as Christians, because it looks like they're in control all the time. But I want you to know this morning that our God, who sovereignly directed our salvation before man was created, he is in control of all that goes on on this planet. We see here at the beginning in this passage of Luke and in Micah there, this historic event of this prophecy, we see God's plan being worked out. But that's not the only place that we see it. We actually hear about it being worked out in the fullness of time in Peter's testimony on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Go there with me. Acts chapter 2 in verses 22 to 24. Because there was more to this story, this redemptive plan than incarnation, than arrival. There was also the work of the incarnate one himself that would be accomplished through God's prophetic plan in history. We see it worked out here and testified to in Acts 2:22. Peter testifies and says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite or determined plan and foreknowledge prearrangement of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter is testifying to this was God's work from beginning to end. God ordained that his son would come forth and that the plan would be worked out even through the hands of wicked men. But yet God had mercy on his mind all along as he gives us this revelation. And I'm thankful that we can actually see that God does this through history. We can see how he shows us mercy and how he's planned to give us mercy in the incarnation of his son from the very beginning. It tells us that he reigns over man and history itself. He reigns over these things and he does so to reveal mercy to those he loves. That's good news for us today. It's good news to know that God will accomplish all that he has predetermined and promised to do, even though it may seem impossible to man. I mean, this this would have seemed impossible. There's no way we could have orchestrated this plan. This was a plan that, that it was impossible for man to bring about. But God was working and weaving through history all the truths that we see revealed in the Old Testament so that they would come to pass at the right time. And just just think about what he did in that. Think how impossible this is for man to do. He predetermined God, the father predetermined before time existed that a virgin would carry his son. Impossible. But he ordained that before time. He, he determined that before time in order to reveal his supernatural power over creation itself. He also predetermined before time that a pagan king would call Joseph to Bethlehem. Well, he did that in order to reveal his authority over all mankind and rulers in particular. Because the king of kings was coming to reign. And he predetermined before time most gloriously that his son would be delivered to evil men to reveal his mercy to sinners like us. This is God's doing. And he does all of this because he has predetermined to, to give us something we can't earn on our own, his grace. And give us something that we don't deserve, which is his mercy. He predetermined this plan to reveal how glorious he is to sinners like us. And he did so by by bringing about this plan in time to redeem a people through the incarnate work of his son. Listen, church, on December 25th, we're all going to open gifts and we're going to have a great time with our families. But all those gifts pale in comparison to this gift of God's predetermined plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, his son. This is a gift that keeps on giving for eternity. This is a gift that we're going to sing about throughout eternity. And that's the story that we read at Christmas. That's why we have the celebrations we have. That's why we enjoy the festivities that we go into. But don't let them overshadow this reality. This is the substance. Those things are the shadows. Never tire of this story this Christmas or any other day as Christians. Never tire of it because Luke is reminding us here that the good news story of Christmas reveals that God will accomplish everything he promises historically and redemptively. That's a great comfort to us. There's a lot of promises that he gives gives to us now as Christians that they haven't come to pass yet. But we know they will because this is a testimony to his faithfulness. And God 
acted himself in this faithful way. God himself acted in this predetermined plan. God came on the scene personally to accomplish this for the good of his people and ultimately for the praise of his eternal name. We see how he does that personally, how he moved in time to bring about that plan in verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 2. Go back there with me in Luke 2. Six and seven, we see that that God, God works out this this plan. God moves in time himself to bring about this plan of redemption in verses six and seven. Here we we learn, secondly, that the incarnation in the incarnation, God reveals his divine sympathy to us personally. This is this is maybe beyond what you've maybe thought about before at Christmas time. But but I want you to think about this. The divine one, the holy one, the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. He condescended at Christmas. He condescended to become a creature. God, the son, took on flesh. That's a very personal act on God's part. And he did it out of sympathy for us. He did it to sympathize with us. Let me read to you what it says in verses six and seven. Just look how. Closely related, he becomes to us. And while they were there, that is Mary and Joseph, the time came to her for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the end. I mean, look, look how sympathetic God is for us. He he comes in this this weak and poor little family. He comes to be a part of our struggle in this world as the creator. But he comes and he condescends to become like us in every way except for sin. God, the son here, he's telling us in this incarnation story, reveals to us the the mercy of God in a very personal way. God, the son takes on human flesh to come after us, to rescue us, to sympathize with us himself. God is sovereign. God is almighty. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Why does he do it this way? Because he's also merciful. He's gracious. He's love. He comes into this world to sympathize with us. And he comes according to God's sovereign plan. God the Father's sovereign plan in history is brought about through God the Son coming in time. And we see in this story how the king of glory comes into this world to become like us, menial, fleshly in that sense of not being anything of great worth in a human form. He's just a baby. He's not coming in authority when he comes like this. Well, he will one day. He'll come back in the flesh. To reign with authority, but this time he comes with sympathy for us. He comes through his humility for us. He comes fulfilling prophecy for us. The prophecy of the one who could sympathize with us. That prophecy is in Isaiah 53. Don't be afraid, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Isaiah 53, though I'd like to, trust me. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Speaking of... The creator, the sustainer, the sovereign God of the universe, God, the son. This is what Isaiah was given to tell us about the one who would come and the one who did come on that first Christmas. Let me begin in verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a shoot out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was just common. He was humble. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is the Lord Jesus. He comes in this humility. He comes in this condescension for us. Though he could have reigned over us with authority. He comes with humility to sympathize with us. We esteemed him not. We saw him as deserving of God's wrath. We saw him as not worthy of praise and honor and obedience because he was just a man. But that's what made him so unique. He was 100 percent or fully God and fully man coming for us to intercede on our behalf. When you, when you read Isaiah 53 in its fullness and you read Luke chapter 2 in its fullness, I think you should be just amazed astounded, in awe of God's condescension and his compassion for us personally. We read Luke 2 and you read Isaiah 53 side by side. You see that when Jesus was born, he was born in poverty. He was sheltered in humility. There was no pomp and circumstance when Jesus, the king, arrives on the planet. And he deserves it and he'll receive it. But at this time he came To display his mercy to us. He came humbly with his parents to that manger. He came looking for a place of rest. They had nowhere to go. They were almost homeless, if you will, at that point. Why does he he do this? Why does God come in this form and through these people? Why does he come with such humility and poverty? So he can relate to us. Because he was destined to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief so he could become our sympathetic high priest, understanding our griefs, understanding our helplessness. Hebrews 4, go there with me. Hebrews 4, 14 tells us why he came with such condescension, why he clothed himself with humility, why he added Humanity to deity and yet didn't display it fully when he came the first time. Isaiah four or Hebrews four, rather. Verse 14 says this. Speaking of our sympathetic high priest, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. How do we respond? Well, he tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That mercy and grace comes in our time of need because of our sympathetic high priest who felt our pain, who felt our sorrow, our grief that we face in this sinful world. He came into this sinful world for us to become the man of sorrow. The babe in the manger was destined for sorrow and pain on our behalf. Not because of his sin. He had none. He came because we sin. And we need deliverance. And we need more than deliverance. 
We need the deliverer to sympathize with us, to understand our condition and do something for us we cannot do on our own. And that's what Jesus did in his condescension. He came to fill our sorrow and grief and he came to conquer sin's curse in the flesh. The very thing that Adam failed to do in the garden. He could never do that on his own. We could never do that on our own. But Jesus comes, the second Adam, the greater Adam, the true Adam. He comes and conquers sin for us in the flesh to destroy this curse upon us. Its power is broken by the incarnation. It's not only broken by the incarnate one. It's broken and and he himself was broken for us in it to become our sympathetic high priest, our, our perfect sacrifice himself. Jesus humbled himself to deliver us from the eternal sorrow that we deserve to to not only deliver us, though, but to also bring us the hope that we have his heart. We have his voice. We have his intercession. We have now eternal joy, not eternal sorrow, because he came the, the perfect one. He came to take our place and he came the right time to give us grace in our time of need. Church, I just got to ask you when you think about that. When we think about what Jesus did in his condescension, how he sympathetically and personally relates to us. Does, does that does that shape the way you worship at Christmas? Does, does the time that you is the time you spend with your family? Is it focused around this? Are you really reflecting on that? God took on flesh to feel our pain. And now we can bring our pains and our heartaches to him personally. And he hears us and he cares. And he acts. Not just now, but acts for eternity to be our sympathetic high priest, our intercessor before the throne. You know, for, for many, Christmas is a joyous time, and I'm thankful for that. It should be. But for many of you, it may be miserable. It may be hard. You may have suffered loss. And Christmas reminds you, year after year, of the pain and the heartache, betrayal. Jesus knows. He knows how you feel. And he cares. This is the beauty of the incarnation. He came for us, not just to redeem us, but because he loves us. And he intercedes now for us as the one who has brought us God's love in the flesh. Church, I, I pray that his humble incarnation would truly, truly astound you today. This incarnation was, is not just something that happened historically. It's not just a historical event sovereignly directed by a God who is a distant deity. No, he came to us personally. The incarnation is more than a historical event. It's a sympathetic act of divine love for sinners like us. And it was displayed by God himself. This should freshly thrill your soul today. This is how you've been saved. God the Son came personally, wrapped in flesh, as God's gift to us. But He came to feel our pain and to rescue the lowly, those who could never rescue themselves. We see Him display that kind of mercy, that kind of compassion for us personally in Luke 2.8. Let me go there, 2.8 to 12. In verses 8 to 12, I think that... Uh, 
we see the third thing that God God's good news about Christ's birth tells us about God himself. We see in this passage that that God loves loves to reveal his mercy to the unworthy. I'll read it in a moment, but just listen to me for a second. God wants desires it's not like he's wanting like we want, not like he's desiring like we wish, not that. It is his nature, it is who he is. He loves to show how great he is by showing unworthy sinners like us how great his mercy was to us in Jesus. He, he loves to reveal his mercy to the unworthy, that is, the lowly, the outcast, the sinners. He loves to do that. Because only those people know they cannot save themselves. Only those people know they're in desperate need of help. They can't try to find a self-righteous cure. They know they're not. And so he comes after them personally. And he does it to display the glory and splendor and supremacy of Jesus' incarnate work. He did it for them. We see him literally show this to some people here in this text. He literally shows how he comes in mercy to the unworthy to choose them to be his first missionaries, his first ambassadors. In 8 to 12, we, we move away from the manger, the Savior and the humble birth there. We, we, we move away from the manger, from this humble condition to something glorious. We move into a glorious announcement. In this passage, what we see is the shift from the humble to the magnificent. We hear the glorious announcement that the king of kings has arrived. And that announcement is given to the most unlikely people you could imagine. It's given to the unworthy. Well, maybe you can't imagine. That. Maybe you relate to that really well. It comes to lowly shepherds. And we think of shepherds a lot of times. We think of David and we think of how wonderful of an example of David, you know, we see in Scripture that what a shepherd's work is. And we have the 23rd Psalm that encourages us. Look at this shepherd. And we look at the great shepherd, which is Jesus himself. But you've got to understand the view of shepherds changed over the years. And uh, there's some reasons for that. But they were no longer considered all that great by the time we come to this text. It says, and in the same way, that's what makes this text amazing, by the way. If, if you don't get that, you don't understand what's so shocking and amazing here in this text. In, in verse 8, it says, and in the same region, there were shepherds. You could say the lowly. Out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel, that's important, singular. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with phobos, with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's key. All the people. Well, first of all, they're amazed that they're even hearing this message. And then to hear the message that this message is coming to all the people, not just the elite, not just the spiritual leaders of Israel, not for the self-righteous hypocrites that we saw in the Pharisees. He says, for unto you. Wow, that, this is personal. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign or the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
Wow. This is absolutely astounding. Again, when you understand what shepherds were viewed as at this time, shepherds were viewed as the lowest class of people that you could imagine. If you could think of the lowest class of people in our culture, these guys were under them. These were the worst of the worst in the view of the world around them. And they were considered lowly and unworthy because they were incapable of doing what everyone else could do regularly. They were incapable to basically obey all the religious rites that was in Israel's society. Think about it. You don't really get a break from shepherding on the Sabbath. You stay out in the field and you watch them day and night. And because of that work that they did, they were over time begin to they over time began to be considered as unclean and outcast in Israel's society. They were considered to be sinners. They were considered to be those who are in need of cleansing because they were dirty. They were not spiritually or ritually clean. Now, when I read that, I, 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 amen, I understand their condition because that was my condition before Christ. And I think that's the very reason that Jesus comes to these men through this announcement. And he, they're the very first people to hear of his birth. He, he gives this good news. God grants this good news through this angel first to those who needed God's mercy most. Think about this. It comes to the lowly, not to the kings, not to the spiritually elite, but it comes to those who are in need of God's grace. Now, I'm really happy that's the way God works. Aren't you glad that he still loves to reveal his mercy to the needy? His mercy and grace still comes to the lowly and needy. And we see that very clearly in the New Testament over and over again. But one place in particular, I think that you can see that your heart's going to resonate with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Hallelujah. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification from God and redemption from God. That's implied there. And here's why he came. So as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Saints, when we consider that we are the not many noble, the not many wise Those who are weak in this world. And that God himself took on flesh to come and become what we are not. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect righteous one before God in our place. This should absolutely amaze us and should cause us to take a step back and and recognize this is good news that we often take for granted. We take for granted this truth all the time as Christians. God, the son comes into this world to choose the lowly and the unworthy. We rejoice in it at salvation. 
But do we reflect on it through sanctification? In the message this morning, in the, in the equipping hour, that was one of the things that came through. God does the work of saving us. And when God saves us, he works his grace into us. And out of it comes sanctification, out of the joy of redemption. It's the fruit of regeneration. And we see that here. We can't boast in anything that we do. Everything we do is in the Lord. He has worked it out for us. And and I hope that when you read the story of Christ's birth, you're reminded of that. God came to us in the flesh. That's eternally good news this morning to us. The Savior of the unworthy came to us personally to show God's mercy to the needy. And I really hope that we are so thrilled by this that we we do what we see happening here in this passage further in Luke 2, 9 to 10. When you think about the shepherds, when they heard about this mercy that came to them now personally through this announcement, you think how amazed they must have been. You think about how shocked they were. I mean, that's part of the reason they had this phobos, this fear. Yes, they saw an angelic being. That would kind of freak you out. I get that. But there's more to that. It's the message. The message blew their minds. And look what happens as a result of hearing this message. And I, and I really pray, I pray that as, as I finish this sermon today, that you are going to be moved in the same way that these shepherds are by this good news message. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news with great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then, then if you'll jump down with me, if you jump down with me just a little bit, we're going to come back to this text. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. They went with haste. We, we see God's mercy begin to work in these men here. We, we see that what amazes and moves these lowly men is, is God's Mercy that's revealed to them, even them. I mean, these men were were lowly. They weren't ignorant. They were obviously trained in some Old Testament understanding of prophecies. They understand that this child who has come, he is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And we see in verse 11 is basically they they hear this message of the the Savior, the, the Redeemer, who is the Messiah, the Lord himself is coming to them. And they are absolutely astounded by this. And this is what moved them down further in the text to go out and tell everyone about this good news message they received from the angels. Here's what they heard. They heard that God's anointed savior, Jesus, has arrived. And he came for you. Even you lowly, unworthy sinners. Folks, that is good news for sinners everywhere and in every season. These shepherds were in shock. They were in shock and then they were also like 
like we would be um, looking at each other going, we got to go tell somebody. I mean, let me just ask you this. Are you are you still in shock? Does this message still cause you to want to go out and tell others about how God's anointed Messiah, his savior has come for you, even you, the lowly sinner? I hope you will be eager to do so the same way they were. I think in verse 12, the angel, the singular angel in verse nine, that angel, I think, was given divine wisdom. And I think the angel anticipated how excited and fearful and amazed these shepherds would be. And and so what he said to them was very, very important here. He said, I'm going to give to you a sign in the text. It's actually the sign. It's a sign that would help them find the Messiah, the Savior himself. He knew that without him stepping in and saying, these guys are so like jazzed up with this truth and so amazed by it, that they're just going to go everywhere in a frenzy. I got to go in there and tell them, look, there's a sign. There's a sign. Calm down. Because here's what would happen. Because these men were so excited, so amazed that, that God's anointed Savior came for men like them, that they wanted to go tell everyone. But here was the problem. There were some places they couldn't go. He gave a sign that the Savior would be born in a manger, a humble condition. They could go there. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't go to the king's palace to look for the king of kings. But they could go to a place that God made accessible for them. I'm glad that God has given us that kind of access to his grace and his mercy in Christ. God, God who is rich in mercy, he revealed this grace to these lowly sinners like us by making himself accessible to us through the condescension that we see in the incarnation. Look what happens next in Luke two thirteen and 14. Here we see, fourthly, that the good news of Jesus's incarnation revealed God's glory powerfully. This is probably my most favorite part of this passage. All right. I love it all, but this is one of those I get really excited about. Let me look at uh, verses 13 and 14 with you first. We have the angel telling them, look for this sign in verse 12. This baby's going to be in this kind of humble condition. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. (laughs) You've got you've got to read this the right way. You've got to read it from the perspective of the shepherds that night. You've got to stop and listen and look and pay attention. Listen to what's going on here. Verse 13 says, and suddenly, wait a minute, there was one angel and then suddenly a host of angels appeared. When did they appear? At the announcement of the angel's message. (laughs) When that angel declared to these lowly sinners that God himself has condescended to come to redeem them, to save them, to be their Messiah, heaven erupted. Heaven erupted in praise and adoration, intense singing, praising God, the sender of salvation. The heavens were shaken by this announcement of the good news that God has sent a savior to sinners like us. 
this is the only way I can ever fully even I can't even fully illustrate this, but I can illustrate it in this way. Could you imagine this is kind of a geeky thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Could you imagine the first time you watched Star Wars and they came out of hyperdrive? You know, they're, they're all of a sudden, boom, they're there, right? This is what's happening. One angel amazing these poor shepherds. And then they're overwhelmed when the message is proclaimed to them because heaven comes alive. All the hosts of the heavenly angels sing God's praises. Church, I, I do not respond to this revelation like that, and I should. When I stop and think about how this message came to us, when I think about how God has revealed it to us himself, I should be able to step back and, and look at the, the response of these men and, and think, that's what I want to see happening in me when I hear this message. These, these heavenly hosts could not hold back when they heard the message of God's saving work in Christ incarnation. They couldn't hold back. They loudly proclaimed, the highest glory in heaven and earth belongs to God. He sent his holy son to rescue the unworthy, and he did it personally. He acted in time personally. He acted sympathetically. I would hope that that still stirs some sort of response in your heart when you think about this. I I pray that this will still have some sort of effect on your soul that reflects that of those here who heard this message that very first Christmas night. This, this message that came to them, it came through the angels. And it's, it's amazing because when the angels show up, they're not quiet. When they hear the news, they echo God's praises loudly. Because they themselves, who long to look into our great salvation, they themselves are in holy amazement. They're in holy amazement because God the Son has come. And he came as a gift from God the Father to grant favor from God and peace with God to sinners through Christ's humility, his sacrifice, his substitutionary work on the cross. The angels were truly in awe of this message and this merciful gift when we read this text. And that message should still have that effect on us. It should still amaze us. This merciful gift should thrill us if we truly stop and think about how this favor and peace has been brought to us by God the Son personally. Look how he did that. Second Corinthians chapter five. This should evoke the same response that the angels displayed here when you read this as one who is not on the outside looking in, but one who is on the inside receiving this truth. In 517, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed savior, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us. This is like the shepherds entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. 
be reconciled to God. And here's why. Here's why you can be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him the son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The incarnation is not about a manger. It's about a cross. Christmas is about the cross. It's about an empty grave. It's about the one who came to take our place, receive God's wrath in our stead. That's why Jesus came. That's why he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. To display God's love for us personally. He made God's mercy incarnate to us. That's the good news of Christmas. And God gets all the glory for it. God gets all the praise because that text and the text before I read in Corinthians tells tells us that this is all God's doing. And the angels were testifying to that on this first Christmas night. Look back with me in Luke 2, 15 to 20. I'll read it. And as you're turning there, just listen. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying. That is the message they received from the angel and the angels. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. He's going to be the anointed savior from God. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all the things, pondering all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned. I mean, they, they delivered their message, right? They're still in shock and awe. They're, they're delivering their message. They're telling his parents. They're telling everyone they meet. And the shepherds returned back to the fields, right? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard, all they had seen, and all that had been told them. They saw the host of heaven erupt. They heard a message from God displaying his love to sinners like them. And they could not contain it. It didn't just affect the way they went out. It affected the way they went home. They went from the fields in awe. They went back to the fields in awe. And does that is, is that resonating with you today? Do you leave here in awe? Do you come back in awe? Not because you have great preachers, because we're just men. But we have a great Savior, the God-man, who has revealed to us his mercy and grace. Personally, this should cause us to respond to this revelation the way the shepherds respond here. When you read this text, you see that the shepherds just couldn't keep quiet about it. Isn't that your testimony when you were first converted? When you're first converted, you're evangelizing everybody. I mean, you're kind of like in this cage stage. You're going around, you're looking for people. And even if they go to church, you're like, hey, hey, you need to be born again, brother. Well, I called your brother. Wait a minute. You need to be born again. You need to understand what it means to be born again. Let me tell you what it means. And you're just telling everybody you meet. You're so excited. You're so on fire because the spirit of God has, has opened your eyes to see the glory of the Savior. Why does that diminish? Because we become familiar because we don't have the angels showing up. Listen, God's still speaking to us. Not in the words of men, not in the words that we hear in our head, but in his written revelation. He still tells us, this is what I did to save you. And here's how you should respond if you have been saved by my mercy and grace. You should be like these shepherds. You should go out with haste, with urgency. That's what he says in 15 to 17. He says these shepherds 
never hesitated to obey God's command through the angels. They never hesitated to respond to the message with praise and adoration. No one had to tell them you've got to be at church Sunday to sing praises, to hear preaching. They went with haste because they wanted to know more of this truth. They wanted to share this truth because they loved the God of this truth. Because they were thankful for his mercy that came to them personally. You think about this. These these unlikely missionaries, these first ambassadors for Christ, they would have never gotten over this. Think about it when they walk through the city and the Pharisees would thump them on the head and would say, get out of the way, you filthy dog. They would treat them like dirt and they're going, but I've seen this revelation from God through the angels. I know, though I'm lowly in your sight, I've been redeemed by his compassion and his grace. You can kick me around all you want. I'm going to be with him in glory. They were amazed. So that's why they went out, I think, with urgency. Their long expected Messiah arrived and he arrived for them. He came for the lowly. I think that urgency didn't just overwhelm them. It motivated them. It moved them to internal joy. I think that's what we're seeing. You know, evangelism, if it's going to be done, I think, in a way that's truly God exalting, God honoring, it ought to be done out of internal joy. It ought to be the overflow of a thankful heart. I just want to tell people about my Savior. I just want to magnify his grace and his truth. I just want you to come to know him because he's worthy to be praised. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But I want you to do it now because he's worthy. And you need him. And he comes for the needy. There's good news for us. And I pray that that's what moves you to still go out and do evangelism. I pray it's it's amazement over this incarnate truth that we see revealed in the Christmas story. Look at verse 18. It didn't just affect these men. It poured over onto all they came in contact with. Everyone they bumped into along the way. I could just see these these shepherds going down the streets and coming into town. And, and they see this guy sweeping the, the, the dirt away from his front door. And they run to him and just tell him. They grab him. They share this truth with them out of joyful obedience, out of praise and adoration. They do evangelism. And it says that all who heard in verse 18, all who heard wondered. And what the shepherds told them, the word wondered can relate to the word awe. All who heard it were in awe. And the word awe is kind of an interesting word because it actually can mean awful. They recognized this God who, who was beyond them, outside of them, holier than them, has now came near them. And they're in awe. They're in wonder here. But the shepherds say, I've got good news of great joy for you. He came like us and he's in the flesh. He's coming to redeem us himself. Does that still strike awe in your hearts today? Is there awe in your heart over the good news that you've been given? Not only given to receive, but given to proclaim. Does it drive your evangelism? That's what I want you to get out of this message today in particular is this. I want I want it to produce some sort of, of, of grace driven, joy driven desire to exalt the king of heaven. That's what I want it to do. I want you to be so excited about God's incarnate mercy to you, even you, that you would want to run out and tell others how amazing your savior is. So they would have awe over Jesus, your anointed Messiah, your savior. And give them hope. I, I pray that that's what this cultivates in you. 
That's what it cultivated in the shepherds here. And we see that in 19 and 20. It says that, that Mary treasured up these things that they, they heard, right? The things that she heard from these shepherds, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and had been told. Everyone who heard this message were in awe of this. And what's interesting to me is this going out of these shepherds does exactly what the angels sang about. It brought glory to God on earth and in heaven as they proclaim this message with boldness and with urgency and with internal joy. And, and that's what I want it to produce in us. I want it to bring glory to God on earth and in heaven as we take it and share it with the lost and the lonely around us. As we share this with them, this is the good news of the Christmas story. God, the son, took on flesh. It's the hypostatic union, the anthropos, the God man. And he came and he dwelt among us. John chapter one. He pitched his tent with us. He tabernacled with us. He, he became like us in every way except for sin to become our sympathetic high priest. He came to rescue us personally. He came to live a righteous life that we could never live, never would live because we all fall short of God's standard and we always will. But Jesus came to fulfill that standard in our place as our substitute. There is no redemption apart from the righteous life that Jesus lived in our place. You must trust in that. Without that, you would have a zero balance before God's holy court. But now that we know in Scripture we are commanded to have righteousness to stand before God, Jesus comes and brings us righteousness himself, and it's credited to our account. Now when our sins are remitted, they're taken away, his righteousness is placed to our account, and we are received by God the Father as if we are God the Son. In this sense, his righteousness now cloaks us. And when God sees us, he sees only the work of his Son, and he is well pleased with him. He didn't just come, though, to be our sacrifice. He didn't just come to stand in our place. He came in that sacrifice to receive what we deserved. On the cross, the sinless Son of God in the flesh took our shame and paid our infinite sin debt to God for us once and for all. It is finished. But that wrath fell completely on him. Christ consumed. He drank the dregs, as Caleb said this morning. Christ took it all to its full degree, three hours on a cross, and became our sympathetic great high priest and substitute for our sins. And he died under the wrath we deserved. He died the death we deserved in our place. This is our sympathetic Savior who incarnated himself and came to this earth for us. But he didn't just live for us and didn't just die for us. He did something much more glorious than that in this story. He rose from the grave for us. He rose up from the grave as our sin-conquering king, the Lord of glory himself. He came up from the grave to declare that our sins have been remitted. To justify us, to free us from sin's curse and reconcile us to God, the father forever. And here's why he does this. This is what the story is all about. 
So at the end of the day and in eternity and forever, we will say this on the last day and for eternity. We will sing the song of the angels and the song of the shepherds that they sang on that first Christmas day. Glory to God in the highest for giving his son to bring us peace, forgiveness, reconciliation to God himself through his humble incarnation. And I hope you really grasp what that story means today. Here's what it means. This should, this should overwhelm you the way it overwhelmed the shepherds. You who were once separated from God due to your sin and unworthy of his mercy. Now you can be his ambassadors. You can be his messengers. You can be his missionaries. And you can sing the heavenly song that the angels could sing. But you can sing it personally because you're not singing about a redemption. You're singing about your redeemer. And he reigns. And he lives and he works through us. And the way he wants us to sing about his greatness is this. By going out like the shepherds and sharing this good news message to all the world around us in humility, but yet joyfully. That's what we are to do at Christmas. That's what your Christmas gathering should be around your tree this year. It's what your day should be like every day of the year. You are his messengers of mercy to take this gospel to the needy. That's why Jesus came. To exalt his name through his messengers as they declare his praise and his worth to all those around us. Church, we have an amazing privilege. We have an amazing privilege to do what holy angels could only dream of doing. We are able to tell people about our Savior and his love for us personally. We can tell them that he has came for us. And he has changed us. He's changed our eternal destiny. He's changed what we're going to do from now and throughout eternity. We're going to always sing his praise and always exalt his name because of his great mercy that became incarnate for us that first Christmas. So let that wash over your minds and amaze you today. And I pray that it will thrill your souls as you worship the incarnate one throughout the rest of this season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Great good news about how you have worked in time and in history through men, through angels, through the lowly to declare your great worth and your sovereignty and your mercy and your power to sinners like us today. We thank you for the way that you have orchestrated redemption, that we can look back in your word and see how you have historically promised it and you have kept that promise And there is fulfillment of that promise yet to come. And we look forward to that day when the incarnate one who humbled himself will come again in full glory. And he'll be received the way he should have been received the first time. With worship and awe and praise from all men. All men will bow and say to the glory of your name, God the Father, that Jesus is Lord of all. I pray that we... Thrill our souls to know that we can sing his praise now. And Lord, I pray that that would move us to evangelize, move us to encourage others out of the great joy of this revelation. Lord, I pray that that would be the means of our sanctification that would keep us from being hindered from anything that would cause us to take our eyes off Christ. Amen.